Hello and welcome to the Album of the Day show. I'm your host, Ian Hooper. So this show is basically a weekly roundup where I talk about the albums that I listen to Monday through Friday that are suggested and or forced on me by a random generator website, which takes from a book called 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die by Robert Dimery. So I'll link that website in the description if you want to suffer the same existence that I do. Um, I'm actually having a lot of fun with this. This is more so of an experiment or a challenge than anything, and it's been pretty fun so far. With that being said, I do have a few rules, though. So, number one, I can't skip any of the albums that are recommended to me. Number two, I can't skip any of the songs on those albums. And number three, I have to listen to the album all the way through in its entirety, as much as I may want to quit sometimes, especially this week. (laughs) So with each record, I'll be going over my notes from listening, my favorite and least favorite tracks, some trivia about the albums and the artist, critical and commercial reception, and finally, a rating out of 10. So disclaimer, I am no expert on music. I haven't heard all of these albums by any means that are on this list. I don't know if anyone has. And if you want to give feedback or you want to share your opinion, Links to all my social media and the show's email are in the description as well. I also like to highlight or spotlight a record that I'm listening to outside of the five that are suggested to me at the very end. So I will be talking about a sixth that wasn't on the list that I don't think actually is on the original list anyway. So outside of that, if you like the show, why not subscribe wherever you're listening? Why not leave a rating? That would be pretty cool. Helps me out a little bit. So with all that out of the way, let's jump into Monday because I listened to the Zombies Odyssey and Oracle from 1968. So I'm actually pretty familiar with this album. Odyssey and Oracle features probably the biggest hit that the Zombies ever recorded, Time of the Season, and I grew up loving that song like a lot of people did. And when I was a freshman in college, I listened to this record all the way through multiple times because I was overly interested in the 60s and 70s psychedelic music like The Doors and the later Beatles stuff like Sgt. Pepper's, Donovan, and like The Stranglers. So I have some experience with this album, but there were things that surprised me and even let me down a bit when I listened on Monday. Um, So let's get into my notes. Odyssey is 12 songs and 35 minutes long, and the first thing I noticed was how great the bass and the drums that are playing throughout. It's done so well, and, you know, the piano is present in just about every song, so my brain mostly filters that out automatically. That's sort of what my ears do is, you know, I I acknowledge what's going on at the forefront, like lead guitars and stuff like that, but I also really want to pay attention to what's going on around that, because that's kind of the marker of a really good song. That's not just, let's do the most simple backing track and then have a lead instrument on top, Right. And the rhythm instruments stand out a ton once you listen for them. Like, it it does so much. The bass lines are groovy. The drums lay down some great beats. It's a lot of fun to listen to that stuff. And um, it starts out really strong, the record does, with the song Care of Cell 44. And the thing that stands out the most on that song is this little vocal breakdown that happens um, around the bridge that is just so interesting the harmonies are really beautiful it's that kind of classic 60s rock band stuff that you expect which is really cool 
And right after that song comes uh, A Rose for Emily, which, oh, it's so needlessly sad. I don't want to, you know, shit on this record right out the gate, but this song is literally about how nobody loves Emily. No one cares about her. She dies alone and no one even knows or really acknowledges it. It's super sad for like no reason. And I wasn't a huge fan of it because it does feel like it, you know, the narrative of the track is very clear in the lyrics and the lyrics just shit on her the whole time. So I was, it felt just a little over the top, you know? I get that they're going for this melancholy kind of sad feeling, but uh wasn't my thing. Um, pretty much every song is a pop ballad about love or, you know, whether that's unrequited or it's mutual or it's longing or whatever. It's it's all about love. Every track is. And there aren't many psychedelic elements to start off. But when Beachwood Park comes on, it really changes the record and shows you what it can be because it's such an interesting psychedelic track that does so much with like studio tricks and and the guitar parts and the vocals and stuff. It's really, really interesting. With that being said, I do think that the album suffers from this sort of tiptoeing on the line between those pop ballads and what could be a really solid psychedelic rock band effort. It just doesn't quite live up to being either, you know. Um, The Zombies obviously write great songs, and I think that they make that very apparent throughout the record. Even the ones I don't like have really good structure and really good lyricism and really good, you know, musicianship on them. I just think that if they focus more on supporting that great songwriting ability and structure of those songs with really solid instrumentation, the album would have benefited and been a lot better. I guess that's just hindsight, you know, like we are spoiled with the 2010s psychedelic revival that we've had. Um, But because of that tiptoeing, the album really sags in the middle. It it, it kind of started to lose my interest. There's a string of songs there that really started putting me off that I just wasn't into. And then suddenly, This Will Be Our Year comes on, which is the ninth track, and the rest of it is solid after that. It's a really good effort. But I have a lot of trivia on this album specifically because the production of this record was pretty wild. So before we jump into that, I want to get into highlights and letdowns. Okay. Um, my favorite tracks were Time of the Season, which is great. It's one of the best songs of the 60s. And it has probably one of the best parts of the whole record on it with these two really great organ solos where they're just absolutely going insane on the keys. And you hear the drums in the back just matching that rhythm. It's really, really cool. I love that bit. It's fantastic. I really like Beachwood Park. I really like Care of Self 44, as I mentioned. Butcher's Tale is another great song. It's this haunting, haunting anti-war track that I think is set in World War One. They talk about trenches and stuff like that, so that's where my head went. And it's really effective. It's really effective at telling that story. And the organ in it is great. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It's, it's melancholy. It's awesome. I really like that track. My least favorites are probably Rose for Emily, uh, Changes, and I Want Her, She Wants Me. I just wasn't really a fan of those. I'm sorry if you are. Let's get into trivia time, because like I said, there's a lot. (laughs) Pretty wild. So the Zombies were an English band that were formed in 1960, made up of main members Rod Argent and Colin Blenstone, with a rotating cast of musicians that supported during their careers. Odyssey and Oracle was the second record that they recorded, 
And Odyssey is spelled O-D-E-S-S-E-Y because of a mistake by the album cover designer, which the band actually leaned into. They said that it was on purpose. It wasn't. They've mentioned that since. It's not on purpose, and it's a stupid way of spelling it. Um, Odyssey and Oracle was recorded in just two months between June and August of 1967 at Abbey Road and Olympic Studios in London. When it was released in April 1968, nobody really cared. None of the singles performed very well. It was very lukewarm, at best, of a reception for this album. It wasn't really until Time of the Season became a huge hit in the U.S. the next year that people really started paying attention to it. And it gradually worked its way into the public consciousness during the rest of 1969 until it was eventually considered one of the best records of the whole decade. And the Zombies were given an immensely tight deadline and budget to complete the record by their label CBS, which lended to the album having absolutely no outtakes or cut songs. The band worked tirelessly during the sessions to get the album complete, and that led to Colin Blundstone and Paul Atkinson butting heads over time of the season. Because Colin hated the song during its writing and recording, and when he was told by one of their writers to sing it a specific way, he just stormed out of the building and told Paul to sing it himself. Now, when mixing was complete, the engineers sent the record to CBS, who told them that they didn't want a mono mix, so they had to mix it in stereo, basically having to start over. And to add insult to injury, the budget by that point had been all used up, so the engineers had to pay for it out of their own pockets. And some of you might be wondering, why does that matter so much? Why does a mono mix or a stereo mix have such a big difference? It's just one speaker and two speakers. The difference is, it's two totally different approaches of mixing. So you can picture mono as like a straight beam to the middle of your forehead, right? And both of your ears are listening to this one beam. And so they stack all of the instruments in this one little section. I'm talking drums, I'm talking bass, guitars, keys, synths, vocals, backing vocals, strings, everything is right there. And so in order to get the parts to stand out, you do a lot of subtractive EQ. You cut out a lot of different frequencies. You know, you move it so that the kick drum isn't getting in the way of the bass drum. You move it so the snare and the guitars aren't getting in the way of the vocals. So a lot of the time you get this sort of cluttered mess in those mixes. That's the problem with mono mixes. And the technology was limited at the time. I don't think stereo was even on the radio until the 80s. I could be really wrong on that. I had a radio class last semester and I don't think I absorbed anything. Um, Stereo is a totally different approach because you can imagine it as you have a whole kind of half circle around your head that starts from your forehead and goes to just behind your ears. And you have all this room to play with in that you can put all the instruments along the stereo field. You can pan them out. So I'm sure you've noticed, you know, listen to basically any modern rock track. You hear one guitar on one side, one guitar on the other. You hear the kick drum and the snare and the vocals, oftentimes with the bass right in the middle of your forehead, like a mono mix would be. But then you hear the rest of the drums spread out. You hear the backing vocals spread out as well. You hear reverb spread out. You hear synth spread out. You hear all sorts of stuff around your head. And so they had to go in and basically re-EQ, recompress, recut, pan, do all sorts of stereo studio tricks to make it sound the way that CBS wanted it to. Because if they were to take the mono mix and just move things around, it would have just sounded like shit. So that really sucked for them. And it was a hefty task, I'm sure. 
The Zombies released two singles in promotion for Odyssey and Oracle, which were Care of Cell 44 and Friends of Mine. Again, both of them were totally unsuccessful. And with the development held that the record was in, plus mounting pressure to live up to CBS's expectations and a decline in live show attendance, the band split up in December of 1967 after one last show. So they weren't even around when the record was released. Because they split before the release, and it hadn't been successful until nearly two years after their breakup, the original Zombies never performed the songs live. And in 1969, there were a bunch of shady promoters who created fake Zombies bands to perform in the U.S. and the U.K. to meet the demand for live shows. And one of those groups was actually made up of Dusty Hill and Frank Beard, who, if you don't know, went on to create ZZ Top. Wild story. Go look it up. They've been very open about it in recent years in interviews. It's not just some random piece of, like, music mythology. It's a real thing that happened. It's wild to think that anyone could get away with that just a few years ago, you know, just a few decades ago. It's, it's insane. But there is some good that came out of all the shit that the zombies had to wade through during this album. Because the original band lineup actually reunited to perform a few times between 1997 to now with a 40th anniversary tour in 2008 that was critically acclaimed. You can find a lot of those new performances on YouTube. They're probably the best versions of these songs. I will link one in the description. It's from KEXP. I love KEXP. I know last week I linked another KEXP performance from Clipping. I just watch everything KEXP does. I think it's really interesting. It's really cool. They have great hosts, great music. That's kind of a plug for KEXP, I guess. <laughs> no affiliation with them or anything, obviously. Um, but it's really cool to watch them all well into their 60s and 70s and probably even 80s for a few of them still kicking ass on stage. They still can shred. They still can sing. It's pretty insane. So, like I said, I'll link one in the description for you. You should check it out if you want to hear really good modern takes that are a bit more polished than what the album ended up being. So critical and commercial reception to Odyssey and Oracle holds mostly A's and above, with the lowest review I saw being a 4 out of 5. I wasn't really able to find any info about sales records, which makes me think it probably never reached gold status, which is when the RIAA awards a gold record to you for selling 500,000 copies. So you can probably assume it didn't hit 500,000 copies, otherwise there would be a certification for it. Um, I'd probably give this album an 8.5 out of 10, or an 8 out of 10. There's a good amount of songs I don't like, but the songs I do enjoy, I would say, are some of the best that I've heard of the 60s psych era. It's really good stuff. It's a great record. It's got a fascinating legacy, and I highly recommend you listen to it at least once. Let's move on. On Tuesday, I listened to Frank Ocean's Channel Orange. Now, this is a record I am super familiar with. I heard of Odd Future for the first time when I was in middle school, when Tyler the Creator and Earl Sweatshirt performed on Jimmy Fallon. They did the song Sandwiches, and they wore ski masks with this creepy girl in a hospital gown. And I just remember, as like a 13 or 14-year-old, watching that performance like, whoa. <laughs> like, the edginess of it was so just it encapsulated how I felt at the moment I wanted to be different and weird and rebellious whatever even though I was a massive pussy as a kid um so I fell into a real big rabbit hole of odd future when I was that age and I connected with Frank Ocean and the internet and if you're a hardcore fan mellow high <laughs> Haji beats and um left brain I was really into odd future as a kid um that's for the hardcore fans I was just super into it it's kind of embarrassing in hindsight 
But this album, along with Tyler the Creator's Wolf and Earl Sweatshirt's Doris and just about anything the internet put out, does prove that the group released some really fantastic material. So the point is, I, I know this record pretty well because I was a bit of a super fan. Uh, that being said, this is probably my third time listening to Channel Orange. I didn't really bother listening to whole albums start to finish as a kid unless I was really invested in the artist. And at the time, I thought skits were pretty pointless. I wasn't, you know, much of a hip hop fan up to that point. My mind has since changed as an adult. Believe me, I think skits are a classic part of hip hop dating back to the beginning. Think like all the great bits that uh, Biggie did and Tupac did and um, especially Tribe Called Quest. I've always loved that stuff. So when I was listening to this as a kid, I was really only listening to the songs and the hits more than anything. But it was a really good experience listening to this on Tuesday. The beats are expertly crafted. The musicianship is tight. The record still retains the sort of otherworldly, avant-garde style. I love it. Frank is such a fantastic writer and performer. He's so good on this album, and he was only 24 years old. That's a lot of raw talent to possess. And his vision was so focused in by the producers and the writers, it's just... It's ahead of its time in that there are very few albums in the R&B and neo-soul realm that have surpassed this record since, with one of them actually being Blonde, in my opinion, which is also by Frank. So with that hefty intro out of the way, let's get into my notes. So this record starts out with a pretty cool skit featuring what I think is the PS2 startup sound. I was an Xbox kid, so I don't really know. And then it immediately goes into Thinking About You, which might be one of the best love and lost songs of the entire millennium. It's just great. Then you get another skit followed by Sierra Leone, which is just oozing with atmosphere and the spacey sound that I just love from Frank every time he does it. Following that is a bit more of a traditional soul and R&B track in Sweet Life. The next song is Super Rich Kids, where Frank gets to flex his storytelling skills. It talks about like a strung out, entitled rich kid falling to his death from a high-rise building, and it does that in such an interesting and beautiful way. I know it sounds morbid, but it's really cool, actually. Frank's vocalizations and his rapping are just top-notch here, uh, not to mention that Earl sweatshirt feature, which is just fantastic. Um, Crack Rock was my favorite track on this album for a really long time. It is the best version of Frank's storytelling, and it has such poignant social commentary on addiction and the crack epidemic it's still impactful nearly a decade later. It's a great, great song. Um, a little bit less favorable for me. I'm not a huge fan of Pyramids. I never really was. I know it's one of the biggest hits from this album, but it doesn't really do anything for me until around the six-minute mark. It's a long fucking song. And had I not been following my own rules, I probably would have skipped it. Uh, that being said, I am glad I stuck around because the latter half of the track is really good. I'm just still not sure if I'm sold on it overall, though. It's It kind of pales in comparison to the rest of the record. Um, following Pyramids is Lost, which has some of the best music on the record. I'm not sure how anyone can listen to that song and not just groove a little bit to it. I was bobbing my head and shaking my shoulders. It's so good. Um, I also don't remember liking Monks as much as I did during this listen, but that breakdown toward the middle and the end of the song is just so good. Those weird synths and the shakers... It, I liked it so much more listening on Tuesday than I ever have before. And the same goes for Bad Religion, because when the strings were there, it, it just fills out the song so, so well. I really, really like that song. Pink Matter is my favorite track on the whole thing. Uh, I'm pretty sure I could listen to Frank and Andre 3000 go back and forth with verses 
over just a Rhodes piano every single day until I die and never get tired of it. It's just, it does so much with so little. And every time it adds another layer, it just moves you. It, it just, it's such a good track. And I don't think it's one of the more popular ones that came off of this album, but I just, everything about it, I love. Like when the bass comes in during the second half, as Andre starts rapping, it made me transcend my human form. I was astral projecting listening to this album. It's so good. Andre 3000 is my favorite rapper of all time. So, of course, he lends so much to the track. It's such a great song. Uh, lastly, the final skit, which is just called End, is a great example of sound design. That threw me into the song even more than I thought was capable. Like, it starts with you hear two people talking in this car and you can hear the rain kind of pattering on the outside and the radio playing in the back a little bit. And then the seatbelt clicks and then the door opens and then you hear the walking and then the door open to the apartment. I don't know why. It just, it stuck in my head. It was really interesting. Like you could close your eyes and picture everything that's happening in the song. It's really, really cool. So I could go on and on and on and on about how good the lyricism, the performances, the music, the storytelling, and the production on this album is. It's it's near perfect. Each song is different enough to keep you interested throughout, but they're all still connected enough to make the project cohesive. I loved it today more than I think I ever have before. Just wow. Just wow. It's just good. My favorite tracks were, of course, Pink Matter, Crack Rock, Thinking About You, Sierra Leone, Super Rich Kids, and Monks. My least favorite is Pyramids. It just doesn't work for me. I don't know. I'm sorry if you like it. I'm just not into it. Um, let's get into trivia before I rate it. On the record is a song called White, which I didn't mention in my notes because it just features John Mayer playing guitar which is really interesting. There's no singing. It's just a simple beat with a guitar on top. And there's what I believe to be an alternative version of the song on the OF Tape Volume 2, which you can look up, Odd Feature Tape Volume 2. And the beat is the same at the end of the track. You hear that, um, I think there's these horns that kind of mirror what John Mayer does on the guitar, um, that same melody. And it's actually got Frank singing on it instead of just the guitar. And it's a Rhodes piano and it's beautiful vocalizations. It's also called White. It's a great track. It's very well worth checking out. If you've never heard that, I encourage you to listen to the White that's on Channel Orange and then listen to the White that's on Odd Future Tape Volume 2 because it's so, so cool. Comparing the versions is, is awesome. Um, Channel Orange was Frank Ocean's debut record following his mixtape Nostalgia Ultra. Nostalgia Ultra was released almost as a protest to Frank's label Def Jam. He felt that they had been inactive with him as an artist up to that point, and so he released it online for free, and it was met with very strong praise from fans and critics despite any promotion. Def Jam and Frank were able to fix their issues later on, and then they moved forward with Channel Orange as his debut record. And the album debuted at number two on the Billboard charts and sold over 130,000 copies in its very first week. Channel Orange is the number one reviewed record of all of 2012 as well. Now, the songwriter Malay had a very heavy hand in the record, and he provided a lot of the ideas for the songs that Frank then wrote lyrics for. Malay also introduced Frank to Odd Future during these sessions, and the two would usually write songs together by improvising, and they would work so well together that the original structure of all of the songs is written in just two weeks. Def Jam Records gave Frank creative freedom for both Nostalgia Ultra and Channel Orange after seeing how accomplished he was as a songwriter up to that point. And speaking of songwriting, Frank mostly took inspiration from his love life. 
Outside of that, Frank also notably gained inspiration from sitting in on Narcotics and Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, which were led by his grandfather, leading to the writing of Crack Rock. Surrounding some of the lyrics and subject matter expressed in Channel Orange, there were some outlets and artists that started speculating about Frank's sexuality. And to put to bed any unneeded controversy, Frank posted a story to his Tumblr where he recounted his first love, who was a man that he knew when he was 19. And luckily, artists in the industry and Def Jam received his coming out with high praise and positivity. So, thank God. As for production, Frank produced most of the record himself, with help from Malay on the instrumental parts who played guitar, bass, keys, and brass. Critically and commercially, Channel Orange is certified gold in the U.S., having sold over 600,000 copies, and it received very favorable reviews, the lowest of them being a 7 out of 10 from NME. Personally, I feel that the record exceeds that, and it sits at a comfortable 9 out of 10. There are very few songs that I don't like, and even those have redeeming qualities. Think the second half of Pyramids. It's fresh, it's different, and it does just about anything it attempts very well. It's a great album. Go listen to it if you haven't. It's one of the best of the 2010s for sure. Moving on. On Wednesday, I listened to Buena Vista Social Club's self-titled album from 1997. I'm not super familiar with Latin music. Uh, my only real experience with anything in that vein is the 1960s bossa nova music from South America and Portugal. So that's artists like Gilberto Gil and Wow Gilberto especially. Is That's all I really know. I love that music though. And when this showed up on Wednesday, I actually got really excited. I love experiencing something musically for the first time. And I'm not familiar with this group or San Cubano music in general. So it was a lot of firsts. A lot of firsts that I was super impressed and happy about. Like, damn, <laughs> this music is good. From the instrumentation, the musicianship, the songwriting, the structure, the production, performances, the style, and the overall just raw talent. Everything about this record impressed the hell out of me. It's so fantastic. I was having a pretty bad day to start out with on Wednesday. Things weren't going my way. I was looking at money troubles. Everybody has had one of those, you know. But when I started this album up, I was sucked into it immediately. I loved it. I, I, I couldn't avoid just smiling and, and dancing a little bit while I was in my chair. It's just so good. So let's get into my notes. Buena Vista Social Club is 14 songs and 59 minutes long. There's not a single moment that I don't enjoy. Right when it opened, I was blown away by the talent that all these guys have. Um, I'm not a Spanish speaker, all these songs are in Spanish, they're all Cuban, the musicians are, and uh, most of the producers, so I'm probably going to butcher these names, I'm sorry, but I'm trying my best. So the opening song, Chan Chan, you get um, this really great, you know, just kind of instrumental thing, and it's, I think, the most popular album or song on the record. It's so, it's so interesting. It's just got this beautiful, like, introduction to it, tight rhythm and good guitars and stuff. Right after that, you get De Camino a la Vareda, I think, which has just great vocals, both lead and backing. And that's really the song that you can tell that these guys have been playing and singing their entire lives. There's a bridge and a breakdown or whatever around the two minute and 30 second mark. That's one of the most beautiful parts on the record. It's so fantastic. And each song showcases great structure and separation between each part. But I think the best example is... When one of the members on El Cuatro de Tula does this part where he goes, ah, <laughs> it's so, it's so cool. Like it works in the context of the song and it, 
it makes you smile a little bit. Like I, I just love that part because it's not super goofy. I know what I did is is so dumb, but I really actually enjoy that part. Like it, it lends a lot to the song, and the guitar solo on that song is insane. Holy shit! I've heard and seen very talented guitarists, and this guy blows just about any of them out of the water. He's so. Oh my god, you need to listen to that song. It's it's amazing. And speaking to their musical ability, I don't think I've ever heard a tighter rhythm section in any group. I know I've been talking a lot about rhythm today, but the guys on percussion and drums, the bass, it's all so tightly knit and it adds to every song this like fourth and fifth dimension. Each song is is different enough to keep you interested throughout the whole album. You get these upbeat jams where everyone is showing off these traditional jazz-feeling songs that are backed by insane piano skill. And then you get these traditional-sounding kind of mariachi songs. Um, You get beach and surf songs. You get some interesting Latin folk. Every song has something super cool going on in it. They're all expertly done to the nth degree in nearly every aspect. I, I love each track. I think the best part about the album is the atmosphere and the aesthetic. It's like a vacation in and of itself. It oozes with this cool, I don't know, it oozes with cool. And I I love how on some of the songs you can hear the musicians clapping and talking to each other just briefly once the music cuts out. It, It feels like a really cool live show. And I'm telling you, I loved every minute. I know these guys have got to be insane live. Um... The song Candela has a very bouncy feel to it. It literally had me dancing in my chair, especially when the cowbell and the trumpets come on. The end of that song, when the singer is like scatting or or improvising or or something, I don't know exactly what you would call it. I just started laughing because it's so cool. Like he's just doing this amazing vocal style and he's just, he's killing it on his vocals. I, I love that little bit. This record frequently gave me goosebumps. It had me dancing, laughing into how fantastic everything is in it. it. It's just, I can't put it into words. It feels like in Rainbows from last week. I love this album. It is such a joy. It's, it's hard to put into words. Um, Amor de Loca Juventud? I, I don't know. I think that's how you would say that. It does this beautiful harmonization with the singer singing in a lower register and the other singing in a much higher. And then in between it, it lets the, the guitars do their thing and they harmonize with each other in the same way. It's a, it's a really cool sort of back and forth and back and forth that they do on that on that song. And it keeps you interested the whole time. Um, Orguesidia is like a, it's like a day on the beach with a beer under an umbrella and this jazzy electric slide guitar that just ties the whole thing together. It, it's, I'm telling you, it, oh my God, I had such a good experience with this album. It's pretty long, but by the end of Orguicidia, I found myself so surprised because there were only three songs left. And I loved everything that came before up to this point. Mumuo comes on next, and you get even more fantastic harmonization in the already super impressive vocals. And then you get Buena Vista Social Club, the song by Buena Vista Social Club, the band on the album Buena Vista Social Club. And it's another solid jazz instrumental track. It It's beautiful. And then it ends with La Baia Mesa, which just made me want to listen to the whole thing again. So I did. I listened to it a second time. This is I listened to it because I had to start doing some work and stuff. 
while I was at my job, and I just listened to the whole album all the way through again. I'm 100% serious when I say I enjoyed every single song on this album, nearly equally. It's a huge favorite for me. These guys are talented in everything they do. The rhythm section isn't super noticeable unless you're listening for it, but then you hear how much is going on there, how tight they keep everything and get it all moving. You hear the lead instruments and the vocals, the piano, the guitar, and the horns, and every time they're there, your ears just latch onto it. This record is near perfect. I can't think of any negative criticism, genuinely. Go listen to it. It's probably well out of a lot of our wheelhouses. Uh, it's great. It's great to educate yourself on some world music and to get your ears listening to stuff that might be out of your comfort zone. I loved this album. My favorite tracks were Candela, El Cuatro de Tula, Pueblo Nueva, De Camino, uh, La Baya Mesa, and Orgua I didn't dislike any track on the record. I didn't. I loved it all. So let's get into some trivia before I rate it. Buena Vista Social Club is the debut album by the group of the same name. The group itself was formed as an ensemble of Cuban musicians by Juan de Marcos Gonzalez, Nick Gold, and Ray Cooter in 1996. The whole album was recorded in Havana and was done so alongside the album Etoda Cuba Le Gusta by the Afro-Cuban All-Stars, which was another similar group made up of mostly the same musicians. The group was originally intended to be a session with two African musicians collaborating with the Cubans, but the African musicians were unable to get their visas and so they couldn't travel, which led everyone to change their plans entirely. So they decided to focus on somewhat of a revival of San Cujanto and San Cubano music, using entirely local musicians. The group was made up of Orlando Lopez on bass, Elaides Ochoa on guitar, Juan de Marcos Gonzalez directing the music, Manuel Licea on vocals, Ruben Gonzalez on piano, and additional singers from Company Segundo. Three days after the group was put together, they all went down to Havana to record at EGREM Studios, which hadn't been updated since the 1950s. At EGREM, the group recorded the entire 14-track album in just six days. Chan Chan was written by Company Segundo, which features a four-chord son progression, sort of like a 12-bar blues in that it is a standard of the style. La Baya Mesa is a traditional patriotic Cuban song, but not the same as the national anthem of Cuba, which is also called La Baya Mesa. It's different, it's, but it's still like a traditional Cuban song. Three more songs were recorded in these sessions, and all of them showed up on later releases, which were called Lost and Found, and another called Introducing Ruben Gonzalez, who's the pianist. Most of the tracks are what they call trova and fill-in standards, which are just, you know, jazz and blues standards of, of the style. It's son cubano music. That's why it's, it's got such great music on it, because they are the most celebrated songs in the genre. Buena Vista Social Club made a huge splash on worldwide audiences with this album. It was praised by critics and earned mostly five-star ratings. It received the Best Traditional Tropical Latin Album Award at the 1998 Grammys and the Best Tropical and Salsa Album of the Year at the 1998 Latin Billboard Music Awards. It peaked at number 80 on the U.S. Billboard 200 charts, but it hit number one on the Billboard Latin, Tropical, and World charts. It was number one in Germany, number two in Finland, number six in Australia, interestingly enough, and it performed the best in Germany, where it was on the chart's top 10 list until 2000, when it dropped to 11. So Buena Vista Social Club has since been certified platinum in the U.S., the U.K., Argentina, Australia, and Canada, double platinum in Austria and the Netherlands, and triple platinum in Belgium, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland. Worldwide, it has sold over 12 million copies total. This album resonates with so many people all over the world. I mean... Who would have thought it would do so well in Germany? Music transcends borders. It has the ability to move you 
and it makes you feel really powerful emotions, regardless if you understand the words or not. I don't speak Spanish. Many people in the world don't. But that genuinely does not matter when you hear this album. It's just beautiful. It showcases raw talent and ability. It's impactful. And it's profound. I love it. Overall, this is getting my first 10 out of 10. Go listen to it yourself and try to tell me it doesn't make you feel romantic or remorseful or inspired or just plain happy. This album is everything music is supposed to be in less than one hour. That's all I can say. On Thursday, I listened to Deer Hunter's Halcyon Digest from 2010. I'm not familiar with Deer Hunter. I don't think anybody in my circle really listens to them or anything, so this was another record I went into completely blind, like Buena Vista Social Club. I do listen to similar bands, and I have for a while. Uh, groups like Ty Siegel and Wand, Together Pangea, and Twin Peaks especially come to mind. Uh, I love the genre of psychedelia and garage rock and nastiness, uh, dream pop and things like that. I think this album really appeals to me because it's new, yet it's familiar, but it lives up and often surpasses the stuff I'm familiar with that's in the same vein. Deer Hunter is obviously made up of some really great musicians. Most notably to me is, again, <laughs> the rhythm section. It's a bit of a theme this week, I guess. The choices that the drums make in their beat structure are very smart. It did kind of blow me away how on Desire Lines, right in the middle of the album, you hear this constant, never-changing rhythm of the bass and the drums, and it never goes off beat. Obviously, they're playing to a click track, but the fact that there isn't even a single note that messes up that I could obviously hear is super impressive and so cool. Deer Hunter knows how to put together a song, undoubtedly. So with that intro out of the way, let's get into my notes. First off, the songs in this were all different enough from each other to keep itself fresh, but I do think a few points of the record don't quite live up to the rest of what's around it. Uh, Halcyon Digest makes some very interesting and cool choices in its production. From direct input recorded guitars that are cranked into distortion, single note droning harmonicas that keep things moving, and just that constant beautiful rhythm and the vocal processing and stuff, it's super cool. It is a guitar-focused psychedelic rock record, and that's stuff that I'm really kind of a sucker for. I found it really interesting this week that I got to see sort of this evolution of psychedelic from the zombies to this, and I gotta say, I enjoy both of them a lot in their own rights. I think they're both really good records. So the album opens with the song Earthquake, which is this massive soundscape with all sorts of interesting sounds going on behind the things that catch your ears initially. And every time I listen to this track after Thursday, it's like I noticed a new element that I didn't before. Very well produced. It's full of atmosphere. There's no single element that overpowers anything. Everything fits perfectly. And around the 3 minute 20 second mark, I believe, yeah, there's a great clap and snare that comes in with heavier bass that really hit me right in the chest. I loved that. Uh, right after Earthquake, you get Don't Cry and Revival, which are two songs that you know, I'm very familiar with, I'm very comfortable with because of other bands that I listen to. I love the fuzzy guitar. I love the mesmerizing vocals. They sort of put you in this really cool trance. I love the bridge on Don't Cry where everything sort of falls apart, but it does so in like a smart and creative way that keeps you interested and it doesn't sound like a mistake because it's obviously not. I love the mandolins and the fuzzy bass on Revival. And I think that the end of that track has done really well too. Those are both really solid songs. After that comes Sailing, which I'm on the fence about. I wasn't expecting the chorus to go major after all the minor verses and the intro before that. And I do like the vocals being processed differently than the tracks before. 
and it really showcases Bradford Cox's vocal ability and style. He's the frontman. You also hear a few mistakes in the guitar playing, but I actually love that. Uh, perfect takes just aren't realistic most of the time. I would know. I'm in a band. I've recorded a lot of stuff. I mess up constantly <laughs> every day whenever I play guitar. That being said, it did feel sort of like a death of the energy in the songs before it. Uh, it just sort of felt like everything came to a halt, and that kind of bugged me. Memory Boy comes in after that, and that has some very interesting instrumental choices. That's where that droning harmonica is at, which I really, really like. The bridge part is short, but it breaks up all the pieces really well. Desire Lines is after that, which is another long track, but it doesn't halt the energy like Sailing did. It's a bit more dream pop than anything before, and I really dig that. The big building nature of the second half where the guitars weaving around each other while the rhythm section keeps everything together, one of the best moments on the album. It's so good. That kick drum rhythm feels like it belongs in a heist movie. I love the jam on that track. I did write that I hoped that there were more jams to come, but that never really came up again. It's kind of a bummer, but it's not enough to take away from the experience that I had. Basement Scene does a good job to slow things down after that, focusing more on a whimsical, kind of chilled take on the lyrics and the vocals. It sounds like you stumbled into a random basement show, and I like that a lot. There's a lot of this strange reverb and delay feedback that happened throughout it, which is really cool. Like I said, the album is at its best when it's comfortable being weird. Uh, helicopter. Helicopter. Let's talk Helicopter. I love that song. This is probably the song that I've listened to the most this week. Um, the 808s and the program drums that start the track, it's just this really cool aesthetic that you hear on Earthquake, too. I really like that kind of experimental, you know, stuff that's sort of outside of the vein of traditional, like, rock music. You don't really hear, you know, fake program drums and 808s and stuff, but it lends a lot to the song. I think that the weird instruments in this are really cool. I guess he's using some um, harmonizer pedal that makes all this really cool... Um, kind of harp t style sounds that are really interesting. All the other weird stuff I couldn't quite place, but it's so interesting. I, I like that I can't figure it out. <laughs> Some of the best melody and the harmony of the whole album is on this track. It's it's, it's just my favorite. I, I love it so much. Everything is done so well. It feels like it just transcends again. It, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous song. Right after that beautiful and atmospheric piece comes a more up-tempo and uh, focus track in Fountain Stairs, which is pretty cool. I like the instrumental breakdown with that lead guitar and those sort of um, Phoenix-sounding guitars in the back. It sounds like Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, which is one of my favorite records. I hope that's on this list, actually. That'd be really fun to cover. Um, Coronado comes after that, which is another fantastic song. It's a great rock track. It's really focused and tight. That makes it perfect. Uh, I love the saxophone that pops up too. Oh my god, that saxophone part is so cool. It reminds me of like a, a modern Sonics, if you know the Sonics. They're like one of the classic proto-punk bands of the 50s. They were dirty and nasty and awesome. Uh, the album closes with He Would Have Laughed, which is a great ending. I like how it just sort of randomly cuts off at the very end. Um, there's no fade, no anything. It's just gone. It's like it's interrupted. And I actually really like that. I love the delayed acoustic guitars and the delay on the vocals it sounds all glitchy and weird obviously i love that it's it's at its best when it's weird it's a great record when it's just going like throwing shit at the wall and being experimental i love that um the poly string synths that are in there did so much for my ears i love that aspect and that sound a ton it pops up a few times in helicopter as well 
And when the drums fully come in, did a ton for the song. The second half of the track is great. It's like a brand new one with that harp thing going on that I love. It's it's just a really good song to end on. Um, my favorite tracks were Helicopter by Far, Earthquake, Coronado, Desire Lines, Don't Cry, and Revival. My least favorite is Sailing, but I'm sure you probably could have guessed that. I think it's a good song. I just don't think it really flows well with the rest of the tracks and the album, which this is supposed to be like a cohesive album structure thing, you know. I do think Halcyon Digest is at its best when it leans into its own weirdness. Songs like Helicopter and Earthquake that are padded with all sorts of weird and unidentifiable sounds and instruments are so interesting, and it really pulled me into the experience. Before I rate it, let's get into some trivia. So Halcyon Digest is the fifth album from Deer Hunter. All the tracks, except for He Would Have Laughed, were recorded in Georgia at Transduction Studios in Georgia by David Barb and produced by Ben H. Allen. As for He Would Have Laughed, that was recorded by Bradford Cox separately as a tribute to Jay Retard. That's just his name. It's the only time I'll say it. Who had actually just passed away in January of that year. So it's just sort of a tribute to a friend of theirs that was in the music scene. Uh, Halcyon is defined as denoting a period of time in the past that was idyllically happy and peaceful. And the concept of the record is summarized by Bradford as, quote, the way that we write and rewrite and edit our memories to be a digest version of what we want to remember and how that's kind of sad, close quote. Uh, Bradford also said that the use of the word halcyon in the title is misleading, stating that it has a lot to do with the way people romanticize the past, even if it was horrific. Bradford said that the album artwork was chosen after the drummer Moses Archuleta suggested that they stick with a black and white theme. And later on, a book fell off of a shelf and opened to a page with the photograph of the album artwork, and Bradford took that as fate. I probably would too. <laughs> uh, in promotion for the record, the group made a flyer and urged fans to download it and paste it around their towns. And as a reward for those who did so, they revealed the track listing and the album artwork and made some unused demos and B-sides attached to the single revival available to them. Every track is written by Bradford besides Desire Lines and Fountain Stairs, both of which are written and sung by guitarist Lockett Punt. Such a cool name. Um, House on Digest was the final album featuring bassist Joshua Fauver, who has sadly since passed away in 2018. Um, and for reception, the album received high praise from critics and fans and has reviews ranging from 8 out of 10 and above from what I could find. The record peaked at 37 on the U.S. Billboard charts and did very well in Belgium and Norway. The only sales records I could find indicate that by 2011, the record had sold 60,000 copies. That leads me to believe it probably hasn't broken 500,000 by now. Otherwise, there would be something saying it achieved gold status. Um, the album might be the lowest selling so far, interestingly enough. But again, that, like I said, within Rainbows, RIAA, the people who certify gold, uh, platinum, and diamond records, they have a hard time counting digital sales. So newer albums are kind of skewed. I wouldn't be surprised if Channel Orange has distributed over a million copies. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I wouldn't be surprised if this album has distributed over 500,000 copies. I just, I don't think that RIAA has really figured out how to count those sales yet. And they have some specific rules that they follow that don't make a ton of sense to me. Anyway, I think for a rating, it's fair for me to put this album at a 9 out of 10. That makes it rival Channel Orange, but puts it above three of the four records we covered last week. It's a very interesting and weird and fresh album that's full of fantastic songs that I've already been revisiting over and over again. Helicopter might actually be my favorite song covered so far, genuinely. That should speak to the quality of the songwriting on this record and of Deer Hunter more than anything. Go give it a listen. It's so good. 
and it hasn't gotten enough love as it should have. All right, lastly, Friday. <laughs> I listened to the Small Faces Ogden's Nut Gone Flake from 1968. If melancholy and the infinite sadness last week was my bad take, this is going to be so much worse. I am very familiar with 60s Psychedelic, as I mentioned before. I love everything from Jimi Hendrix to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, all the way down to groups like The Stranglers and Donovan and Count Five. I really enjoy 60s Psychedelic Rock, hence why I like that Zombies album. I'm such a big fan of early Tame Impala. So when I first heard the opening track and the one following it, I was really interested. But holy shit, this album tanks after that for me. I'm so sorry if you like or love this album because I'm about to rant about how much I did not enjoy this. You might want to skip through here if you don't want to hear my angry bullshit rant. I'll come back at the end and tell you right here where you should skip forward. So future Ian will speak in three, two, and one. Hi, this is future Ian. You're going to want to skip to about 63 minutes and 23 seconds. Let's get on to my notes. Ogden's Nut Gone Flake is 12 tracks and 38 minutes long. The only version on Spotify is the 50th anniversary one from 2018, which has the entire album in mono, in stereo, and then a bunch of alternative mixes, early sessions, and backing tracks. I started listening to this album in mono first, but I wanted to hear the intricacies of the instruments a bit better, so I switched to stereo after the third song. So, like I mentioned earlier, it, it mono and stereo versions... They have their own quirks. They have their own things that they suffer with. It's just part of the experience, I guess. The album opens with the song Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, which is a classic psychedelic rock song. I really like that one. You can hear the influence that this song had on the psychedelic revival of the 2010s especially. It sounds like it could be on Tame Impala's Inner Speaker. It's a really good track. I like the strings at the end, but I do wish they did a bit more than they end up because the track does get somewhat repetitive toward the latter half of it. After that, you get Afterglow. I really like that one. It opens with this folky bit with really strange percussion, and then you get blasted with this whole band coming in and these really strong vocals. It sounds like an outtake from a Led Zeppelin four or Physical Graffiti. I really dug that. Really cool song. Long Ago is in Worlds Apart, follows, and has some great instrumentation. I really liked that one. I like the claps. I like the weird guitar sounds. All of it is cool. But this is also when I switched to the stereo version because I felt like everything was just getting lost, being all in the same bandwidth all in the middle of your head i did like ogden's not gone flake and stereo better because you can better hear the guitars and the strings but it really really puts me off that they just pan the entire drum kit to one side it sounds like it's mic'd with more than one microphone it genuinely does but it's all stuck to the same little narrow area on one side of your head i appreciate what the remaster engineers had to go through to get here but that was a weird choice I imagine that probably the entire drum kit was just bounced to a single track when they got the tapes and then they had to, to figure it out. So if you're not really fully understanding what I mean by the drum kit being in a little narrow area, I know it sounds nitpicky. Drum kits are very incredibly dynamic instruments. They feature some frequencies that are in the very low spectrum of human hearing. So think like a kick drum that thump. You hear that really low, and then you hear, you know, floor toms up above that and snares and rack toms up above that, which are around the range of like a human voice of what you, you regularly hear in singing. And then above that, you have all the cymbals, which, ksh, 
you know, it's really high up. So you get a lot of different uh, dynamic ranges in the frequencies of that instrument. So that's why they work so well in stereo, because you can take the kick and you can take the snare and maybe the hi-hat or whatever and put that right in the middle of the head. And then you can move the toms and the rest of the cymbals around the stereo field and get this huge spread out drum kit like you would hear at a live setting. The problem is when you take an entire drum kit, all of those frequencies, all the things going on and just shove it to one side, that instrument is so big and so dynamic, it throws the whole track off balance. You can't have an entire drum kit on one side of your head and then have a single guitar on the other. That is so off-putting. I, maybe it's nitpicky to you. Go listen to the stereo versions of these songs in headphones and tell me it doesn't bother you at least a little bit. It's really annoying. I really don't like that at all. And I know that the 60s made some interesting choices. Even on some of the stereo versions of like Jimi Hendrix songs, you can hear the drums all the way over to one side. And I don't like that. I don't. So again, it's not a nitpick of this album specifically. It's just a style or a creative choice that I hate. I hate it. I don't enjoy it. And pretty much every song of the stereo version of this album does that. Anyway, um, Afterglow in stereo is nice. I like it a lot better, but again, the drum kit is on one side. Throws the whole track off balance. I don't like it. Um, I do like that you can hear the reverb floor of it spread around your head. Like you can hear uh, the reverb of the vocals on the left or the right, and that, that sounds really interesting. Long Goes and Worlds Apart, again, is nice in stereo. The bass is more intelligible. Um, the weird guitars are more present. One of them sounds like it's being played through like a rotary speaker for an organ. I love that sound because Led Zeppelin does that a lot. Renee comes after. I really like the music for this one, just not the vocals. Uh, they do this weird inflection like the B-52s. Um, think like, love, shack. Like, that's kind of what they do. Um, and then the second verse has this cockney over-exaggerated accent that you hear in musicals and I loathe that I hate it I don't enjoy many musicals because of that over-exaggeration like I like movie musicals I like you know um, like Nightmare Before Christmas and I like um, like Corpse Bride I like you know obviously the Disney movies and stuff because they're not over-exaggerating their characters a lot of the time like yeah their characters are dramatic and they are a little over the top in a lot of cases but there's a difference between that and like, hello, governor, how you doing today? I hate, oh my God, I hate that so much. It drives me insane. And that's what literally shows up. I wanted to skip this song so bad at that point. But I am kind of glad that I didn't. The instrumental bit toward the end is nice. The keys and the organ are really cool. And the big fuzzy guitars and the harmonica lend a lot to the song. That's really cool. That being said, I probably won't listen to this song very much because to get to that part, I have to suffer first. I, I'm sorry, I hate that so much. If you're a musical fan and you like that thing, more power to you. I fucking despise it. I can't express that enough. So after that song, um, a track called Song of a Baker comes on. That one's pretty cool. I like how the band ducks out of the verses when the vocals are present. Um, it has some of the best melody and vocal harmony on the whole album. And at that point, the drums being on one side and throwing the mix balance all out of whack really bothered me. So this is when I switched to mono, and I actually liked it better. Even if it is cluttered, the album definitely suffers from neither of the mix versions being very good at being stereo or being at, at mono. No shade to anybody involved. I get the limitations of the time. I get whatever the, you know, 
mastering engineers had to do it. It's a hefty task to take on, I'm sure. Um, Lazy Sunday comes after that. I really don't dig the musical style of it. Not a fan. The vocals remind me of Rush, like a, I think Getty Lee is his name. I've never really liked that style. Sorry. Um, but the latter half improves a bit. The instrumental breakdown is cool. I wish there was more of that on the track. Uh, this is where the album jumps the shark for me. Happiness Stan is next. I'm kind of on the fence with it. Um, the beginning starts with this horrible, ridiculous, unintelligible audiobook thing from a narrator. It's so unnecessary. It's definitely not the last time that it's there. I think it might be on almost every track after this point. I, oh my god, I hate it so much. Uh, the verse directly after that intro bugged me. It felt like the album has now decided to stick with that ridiculous Cockney musical shit. At the halfway mark, the band is now playing all their parts in a very huge and interesting way, and I like that. Uh, the rest of the song at that point is good. It's almost great. But then the audiobook thing returns, and it goes on for so long that it just drags. And then you get rolling over. I fucking hate this track for the sole fact that the main riff and guitar is a blatant copy of Foxy Lady, which came out a year before. I hate that. I hate it. It could have been a good song had they just changed the riff enough to be something of its own merit, but they didn't. They just did Foxy Lady, and I hate that. Black musicians have been stolen from since the dawn of fucking time. Stop doing it. Even bands that I love more than, you know, most do that. I, oh my God, I hate that shit. Um, Hungry Intruders after that. Hate the audiobook thing. It's so distracting. It's so off-putting. I wrote at this point, quote, why did 60s psychedelic think that weird equals cool automatically? It doesn't. It's usually just dumb. Close quote. It's a pretty okay song, though. I like the instrumentation. The breakdown's bad. For some reason, they feel it's necessary to tell a useless story, and it brings the song to a halt, and you hear that horrible Cockney accent with someone saying, my name is Stan. I'm on a quest. Fuck off, Stan. I fucking hate you. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my God. Oh, this song. I wish I recorded my reaction to this album because it's down. It's even more downhill from here. The journey follows. And I want you to hear this one sound. Because whole life like stuff of a footage. <laughs> Are you fucking serious? Who thought that was a good idea? I hate that choice. I hate the audiobook thing. I don't know why they think it's so interesting. And on nearly every song in the second half, it's present. Why did they do that? It's not even an interesting story. It's unintelligible. And it's annoying because I want to hear the fucking songs. The end of it is okay. I like the jamming and the drums are really tight. I think that's a cool part of the song. But why Why this audiobook shit? Why are we doing that? I. Oh my god. I'm just going to read directly from my notes for Mad John. How are you going to make the entire first minute of this song this dumb fucking audiobook? The rest of the track is an interesting folk song too. And then you bring it back in and interrupt the good music with more of this shit. And in the background, the music changes to something interesting that I want to hear, but you drown it out with this dude's voice for nearly two minutes. Fuck you. Uh, last song is, <laughs> the last song is Happy Days, Toy Town. And it's supposed to be this big, whimsical finale song, like in a musical, and I just wanted it to be over. And then, of course, and then, of course, they finish the track with more of that audiobook. I detest the last half of this album. I hated it so much. It was actually driving me insane. I'm so sorry if you like this album. I, I, I 
can't say I understand why, but I get that everybody has their own, you know, opinions and likes and dislikes, especially involving something as subjective as music. Good Christ, I can't stand this. Oh, my God. <sighs> I hated it. I hated it so much. <sighs> the tracks I do like are Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, Afterglow, Song of a Baker, and Long Ago's and Worlds Apart. I don't like Happiness Stan, or Rollin' Over, or The Journey, or Mad John, or Happy Days Toy Town. I don't like those songs. I think it sucks. I'm not into it. I don't like the audiobook. I don't like the Cockney accent. I don't like the whimsical bullshit of the musicals. It sounds like Cats. And I, I saw that movie in theaters with my friends. And I never want to experience that ever again. And this made me relive that fucking war flashback. Let's get into trivia. Ogden's Not Gone Flake is the third record from Small Faces and is their only concept album. Thank God. The story of this fairy tale in the album follows a boy named Happiness Stan. And it's narrated by Stanley Unwin. In his own unique brand of nonsense he calls Unwinese. Unwin was present during studio sessions, and he noted the language the group used with each other and incorporated into his performance. The fairy tale follows Happiness Stan on a quest to find the missing part of the moon when he sees it waning in the sky one night. He saves a fly from starving, and the fly leads him to a wizard guy of some sort who can answer the question of the moon disappearing and tell him about the meaning of life. At one point, Stan says, If all the flies were one fly, would a great enormous fly fall up or that were bold? I know. And then the fly grows massive for some reason, and he rides it to go find the wizard guy, who shows Stan that all the time he spent looking for the old guy, that the moon is now back to normal, because Stan's a fucking idiot. The idea for the fairy tale came while the group was on a most likely acid-fueled boating trip after a failed tour in Australia, and the bassist saw the moon and said that the other half had disappeared. The band recorded Ogden's Nut Gone Flake over a period of five months, with most of the recording done at Olympic Studios in London during spring of 1968, the same place that the Zombies recorded Odyssey and Oracle. In fact, the Small Faces actually recorded the first track intended for Ogden's Nut Gone Flake less than two months after the Zombies in October of 1967. Much of the record was recorded by Glenn Johns, who's famous for his work with Led Zeppelin and creating their famous drum sound, which is now dubbed the Glenn Johns Technique. The record was originally released in a novelty replica tin of tobacco, like the album cover, which is actually pretty cool, honestly. But they realized it was too expensive to produce, and a lot of the albums were getting damaged because they were rolling off her shelves because they were round and made of metal. Also in promotion, the record label, Immediate Records, advertised this album parodying The Lord's Prayer. The parody made a lot of people really mad, and the press caused an uproar over it. Lastly, Ogden's Not Gone Flake, the song, appears in the very first trailer for Grand Theft Auto V and is featured on one of the in-game radio stations. You can go look up Grand Theft Auto V debut trailer. I did. It, yeah, that's the song. It starts with Michael saying something. I don't know. I used to play that game. Um, the record was very well received. The lowest review I could find was a 4 out of 5 stars. So, guess I'm wrong about this by most accounts. Uh, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake did the best in the UK, peaking at number one, but it only made it to 159 on the Billboard 200 in the US. I couldn't find anything about sales numbers, so I'll assume it didn't sell more than 500,000. As for my rating, this is a 5 out of 10 for me. I gotta give it an F, because there are good songs on here, but the bad heavily outweighs that. Heavily. The things I don't like about this album, I hate so much that I just can't ignore them. It does so little for me, and I really wish I liked it. It's so close to being good to me 
but I just can't enjoy it. I'm sorry if you're a fan. I am not. Let's move on. Because outside of what I was forced to listen to this week was the brand new record from Shame, Drunk Tank Pink. To start off, I wasn't a huge fan of Shame before this. I did like a few of their songs from their previous album, which was Songs of Praise, namely Concrete and One Rizla, but I couldn't quite get into the rest of the record for some reason. It didn't click with me a ton. But back in December, I heard two of the three promo singles for this record, and my anticipation for the album went from very little to Through the Roof. Both Snow Day and Water on the Well blew me away. When this record was released just one week ago from the day that I'm recording this, I listened to it all weekend and all this week. We're probably at listen 10 or more. It's just so... Oh, it's so good. I love post-punk music. I'm really into it. I'm really into punk. I'm really into proto-punk. I've always loved that stuff. I've loved weird music like, you know, talking heads and television and all that stuff. I love that shit a ton. And this is just a modern take on that that's a little bit more haunting, a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, it's good, dude. You need to listen to it if you like it. Um, Shame is a band from South London, England, who have started their careers making some of the most interesting rock and alternative music in the genre right now. Top to bottom, this is one of the best rock records in recent memory, and in my opinion, is the best post-punk record in years. It's just that well done. Every track is fresh. It all builds off each other to craft some weird, distorted, funhouse mirror version of the world we live in that Shame presents. It's got a little bit of everything that I love. It's got energetic vocal performances, abstract but catchy lyrics, tight rhythm, fun bass lines, great guitar licks, and tight production. I can't praise this album enough. So if you're a post-punk fan, you'll love Shame. If you're unfamiliar with the genre, this is a great introduction into it. I know the year has just begun, but it is and might just stay my favorite album of the year. Go check it out. I would love to hear if you like it or not, and if you're going to tell me if you did, tell me what else you listened to. I always find it super interesting when someone who loves punk or metal or hardcore also enjoys stuff like Charlie XCX. So tell me if you like or dislike the record, what put you off or made you like it, and what you generally listen to. I would love to hear. I find it fascinating. Anyway, that's all I have for this week. Uh, you can find the link to the album and day generator in the description alongside my social media handles. If I made you upset or I have an opinion that you strongly disagree with, I'd love to hear why. Honestly, I did this podcast because I like talking about music. I'm nothing of an expert, like I said. I just love this. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm also going to link some live performances of the zombies that's of you know the last 20 years. And then I'm also going to link a really cool performance from Shame in the description. So check that out. Um, thanks for listening. Hope I see you next week with another six records. Bye!